Kia ora everyone, I'm Andrew Whiteside. As you may know, the Auckland Pride Parade and Festival has been placed in jeopardy after the Pride Board voted to ban police uniforms from the 2019 Auckland Pride Parade. There's been a huge public backlash over that decision and now community organisations and major sponsors have pulled out of next year's event. Problems with police participation in Pride Parades are not unique to New Zealand though. Many cities around the world are grappling with this issue. One of those cities is Toronto. In 2016, Pride Toronto banned police marching in the parades that were held in 2017 and 2018. Next year, police will be welcome back for the 2019 parade. To discuss how this all happened, I'm joined by Olivia Neumar, who is the current executive director of Pride Toronto. Uh, So, Olivia, welcome to the show. I just wanted to get some kind of background from you as to what led up to the ban in 2016 of police marching in in Toronto. In order to sort of uh, zero in on 2016, I'd have to go back a few years. Um, Effectively, um, you know, as Black Lives Matter began to take hold um, across the world in 2016, um, it certainly a few of the founder members of Black Lives Matter um, were also a part of Pride Toronto. Um, And in 2016, Pride Toronto decided that it would make Black Lives Matter its honored group. Um, That honored group in the city has quite a lot of profile. And so, um, you know, gets a lot of um, interviews, uh, mainstream television, etc. In 2016, uh, certainly those people that were a part of Pride Toronto um, wanted the festival to look and feel a certain way. Um, They felt that they weren't heard, but also felt that it was reminiscent of the way uh, Pride Toronto had treated queer communities of color in the past, which is a somewhat marginal. And so in in addition to that, there were a number of you know, all over the world, but and certainly Toronto included, there were a number of shootings um, by police officers of people of color. And so in 2016, Black Lives Matter uh, chose the opportunity of the parade um, to highlight these issues um, by halting the parade and protesting at it. Um, That then led to a conversation inside Pride about... um, certain members of of, uh, the LGBTQ2 plus community and their treatment by police services, um, which led to, uh, you know, a series of events, I guess most notably was the uncovering of um, serial murder uh, in the queer community in Toronto. Um, Most of those victims being queer men of color. Um, And so, uh, has led to a very deep conversation about how some members are, of our community um, are policed by our local police service. So um, the, the process that you went through, you did you have public meetings and discussions about this? Yeah, so what happened was um, they protested the event in 2016, and on site they were asked to... Uh, Pride Toronto was asked to sign a list of demands. Um, And that list included um, banning, at that time, police floats, not police service in particular, but police floats uh, from the parade. Um, It led to three or four town hall meetings. 
where we consulted community members. They were vehement that um, they did not feel safe with the police presence. Um, it then led to an AGM. So we had, I think, two community meetings or three town halls and an AGM. At that AGM, a number of members came and voted not to have the police participate until there were appreciable improvements in the way the police policed queer communities of color in Toronto. Did you get a sense that there was a cross-section of the community at these events, that they were well attended, the, these meetings? They were well attended. Um, oh, in total, I guess about 1,100 people must have responded to the, both the community meetings and an online survey. And it was a cross-section, it was everybody um, that you can imagine um, from within the community um, who voiced their concerns about uh, policing. Um, it was absolutely everybody. Once the ban was put in place, what kind of reactions did you get from the community, um, particularly those who may have been against this, the, the, the ban? What, what kind of reactions did you get? Oh, they were very upset. Um, I would argue that a majority of our community were probably against the ban, actually. Mm -hmm. um, of course, what makes the queer community particularly interesting is it has a history of fighting for the minority voice. Yes. Um, and so it was very hard for uh, Pride Toronto to listen to the majority voice because alone, because we understood that um, in um, uh, the queer community, and that's the LGBTQ2 plus community and the whole community, that there were people that had different experiences of policing and the majority might not have been harmful, but the minority for whom were suffering um, negative outcomes um, were particularly vulnerable within um, the uh, LGBTQ2 plus community. And those are the voices that we decided we would listen to. Um, as a result, the, um, those that were pro-police um, were very upset. They became angry. They, uh, to some extent, boycotted uh, the event. Um, and of course, um, L uh, queer police officers particularly felt slighted by the decision. Um, so, uh, in the end, I would honestly say that there were probably more voices that were angry um, about the decision than there were that were happy about it. I'd say that there's similar parallels to what's happened here in, in New Zealand as well, similar kind of things. Were, did you find, uh, were there any sponsors or um, major organizations who pulled out of future Pride marches because of that decision? Not one. In fact, I would argue that um, at the time that Black Lives Matter protested our event, there were a lot of, um, you know, camera phone stories of particularly black men who were being, you know, shot on sight, young black boys who were mm -hmm. being shot on sight. Um, and so I think for corporate sponsors, there was absolutely a sense that they had to be on the right side of history. Right. Um, and so we found actually relative to the amount of time we had to organize the festival in 2017 and again in 2018, that our sponsorship levels relatively remained the same. And the ones that couldn't come on board um, in 2017 because we started planning so late uh, came on board in 2018. 
um, all of them pledging their support um, to the organization. Um, and particularly, you know, they all wanted for the police to be in the parade. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they also wanted it to be um, on the terms of the queer community. And so um, didn't, it didn't punish us because of it. I'm interested to know the community reactions to those who were advocating for the ban, um, and particularly um, Black Lives Matter. What, what, did they come under criticism from people in the community about either their tactics or were they accused of being radicals or hijacking? What, what was the kind yes. of... Sorry, go on. You're triggering me because all of those words are the exact words they were accused of hijacking, um, being disrespectful to the position of honor group, radicals, taking over pride, um, not representing the whole of the community, but only their own self-interest. Um, that was uh, perhaps the most toxic element of the conversation. And remember, it's the reason why I mentioned how long they had been involved in pride. Because from there, it became clear that it was a very, it was a community with a very, it was a conversation with a very straight lens, you know, a lens of the sort of heterosexual community um, who were applying their own sense of morals to a situation um, that they didn't really know anything about. That's the first thing it said. And of course, the second thing it said was that the community itself had done a very bad job of um, ensuring that the issues of the most marginalized members of the community were coming to the forefront because, you know, the mainstream public really didn't see it as um, marginalization. And of course, there were a number, in fact, like I say, the majority of the LGBTQ2 plus community who felt that they had done their fighting and they didn't want to fight anymore. They just wanted to celebrate coming together and a togetherness. And in celebrating that, they didn't want to have to think about the most marginal members of the community. Um, and I would say that for the most part, the majority of the views lay there. Um, and it was and the, the, the way in which I approached the conversation was very much to talk to them about the start of the movement. And the start of the movement was by a queer woman, of, a trans woman of color, um, who had both suffered racism and the homophobia involved in being trans in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And, had, and, that, and that, in fact, that was the birth of the movement. And it, was, and it was hard because you had older people who had lived to, through quite difficult times um, as um, gay um, men and lesbian women um, and were moving into um, you know, what they felt was a level of acceptance. Um, and here you had a bunch of young people who make up the bulk of the LGBTQ2 plus community today, um, you know, young queer people of color who were saying, we're not being treated great. You might be being treated great as same sex marriage is heralded as something special and as, you know, police march in so many parades. They might think it's great, but poor queer people of color um, continue to experience the same levels of marginalization. And it took a year and a half to find the middle ground by suggesting to all queer communities that there was a time that they went through their own trauma 
and that acceptance for different members of our community has come at different times. Um, and right now, acceptance for our more marginal queer um, um, members of the community um, has not come yet. And so we have to put all of our energy behind that, like we put behind the AIDS struggle and like we put behind the, you know, the times when this community was criminalized and we needed to do the same thing here. And it did take a while. Uh, for sure, but at least what what we tried to do was move them away from being so polarized by having them remember a time when everybody was fighting for the same thing. So how did you actually do that? Was this, again, a, a, a range of meetings within the community, or, or were there other things that you employed? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Um, so it was, it was multi-pronged. It was absolutely, um, we are lucky to have access to um, much mainstream media. And so I went on um, an offensive um, on all media that I could get my hands on. I would, I would go and talk about the quality of partnership and talk about how the police, by because remember, they withdrew, mm-hmm. and talk about how the the police by withdrawing were in fact demonstrating their commitment to us um, as uh, a community and demonstrating their allyship. And so I talked a lot about the importance of partnership um, and did so with a steady and reasoned voice. So that was very important. It's important that you understand what every section of the community feels, both the ones that are really, really hard against and the ones that are really, really hard for, because the majority are the people in the middle who don't know. Um, The minority are on the far left or the far right. And so you have to talk to the people in the middle. That was the first strategy. Um, And speak to them from a very reasoned perspective. So that's one. Two, we also um, developed a communications um, strategy online. And So we have quite a large audience on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. And so we started crafting messages and crafting posts that were meant to be healing, bring people together, meant to garner more conversation about what it would mean to meet in the middle as opposed to always being on the left or the right. And so that was an incredibly important piece. Another piece was you're absolutely right going to as many meetings as I could possibly get to. And this was, I think, the key, is you have to strategize for your most vocal organizations and bring them on side by showing that you're an honest broker. You don't mean to purport one view or another, but you do mean to bring the sides together. And so I went to a lot of community meetings, did a lot of talks at businesses and corporations and people who simply were allied to pride. And that included the police service, by the way. A lot, a lot of talking with the police service to try to find a way we could message. So where from the very beginning, the police service and pride started speaking from the same language of, of healing and, and bringing people together. And so for a year and a half, you, could, you couldn't really put a piece of paper between the police service and Pride Toronto, because we were always saying the same thing. We knew that there were problems. We knew that we might be sitting on opposite sides of the fence, but to the public, we were always united. And that's incredibly important. I also went to politics. 
I met with every single counselor and asked them to please consider viewing the subject differently, to see equity as something different, and to understand that to have one conversation didn't to have one conversation about the police not being involved didn't negate the strides we had made, you know? And so there was that conversation. And then obviously we have a bunch of volunteers um, who are really our uh, ambassadors. And we talked to them a lot about what it meant to um, take on a responsibility as an ambassador for the organization and to speak from a perspective of healing and bringing together. Always recognizing that the people that don't feel safe with the police in their parade have a right not to feel safe. So you could never negate that voice in this conversation. But what you're trying to do instead is say, we all have to come around the table to fix it. It's not that they don't participate until we decide they do. And that was the last prong. The last prong was to say that the police can never get better without us. They can never get better without us all sitting at the table. You know, a kind of that nothing about us without us type mentality. And so the only way that's going to happen with us is if we agree that we are going to broker a better relationship and we are going to try to create something that works for everybody. Um, so that it, there was a definitely a, a strategic communication strategy that went to get not only at the heart of decision makers, but the heart of people on the ground. The, the police have now um, been it, invited uh, back to um, next year's parade. Do you see this right. um, as an important step, but there is still work to do? Oh, my gosh. So we understand that, I, like, right now, I have to tell you, it's very tenuous. Um, you know, some organizations who, uh, you know, they want to be involved, but they don't want to be seen as being pro-police by being involved. Um, it is. It takes constant, constant brokering, but... The understanding is, is that if you work first on developing formal mechanisms for consultation, for ideas development, and then for implementation, you're from the start selling it as a long-term proposal. Nothing in the short term. You're constantly saying to people, we are going to develop the structures that will allow us to listen to what you have to say and build those views into what we might imagine a service to look like in the future. But the start has to be a proper consultation process that gets to the heart of what people actually experience so that we can start to address it. What has this whole process been like for, for you personally? It's been so difficult. They, you know, there aren't very many pride EDs that last longer than two years. Um, this, the organization is so close to so many people's hearts. Um, but at the same time, um, it is, a, is very much an organization wrapped up in its own trauma. You know, if you're a member of this community, it's hard not to feel traumatized in one way or another in most encounters you have in public life. Um, it would be the same for me and for actually anybody working in both the organization at the governance level or at the staff level. It's very, very hard to be on the receiving end of so many people's disappointments, whether no matter what decision you make. 
But by the same token, um, the constant recognition that the way that this work is going to move forward um, is by brokering peace means that personally it takes quite its toll on you. You know, and if you are a queer member of the community who is of color, so you're also very personally engaged in the conversations while being professionally engaged in the conversations, um, it can be very, very difficult. And so I would certainly caution and because I've been reading about what's happening in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and it's taken the same kind of genesis as it did here. Only perhaps some of your sponsors are a little bit more conservative than ours were. Um, and so we're pulling out more rapidly. But I would say that the fix for that um, is to engage in an outreach process immediately. And somebody else asked me, how do you contain this conversation? And that's by going to your sponsors first and making it clear that you are developing a process to work your way through these conversations and keeping them with you as opposed to letting them drop off. So even if they decide to drop off, they will stay with you and they will watch from a distance and then come back in when they feel like the conversations are moving in the right direction, you know? That was Olivia Neumar, the Executive Director of Pride Toronto. I'm Andrew Whiteside and I'd love to ask you all to please share this interview and thank you for listening.